Let's, uh, let's go ahead and continue them into our study with the book of Romans. We are in chapter 12. We're looking at the first eight verses this morning. Uh, and the next week, Mr. Dave Dumpy will, will come up here and, and finish out the second half of that chapter. And I'm sure it will be fantastic. And we're going to be looking this morning at the life of the Christian in light of God's grace. The, the life of the Christian in light of God's grace. I've, I've put the uh, passage there at the top. Um, of your handout, so I'd encourage you to read that along with me. I want us to take just a couple minutes to read through this passage and, and orient ourselves fresh over what we're going to be studying verse by verse here over the next uh, 40 minutes or so. So the word of the Lord says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Amen. The word of the Lord. The uh, thought experiment that I would like for us to engage in as we go through this lesson. I, I've put that down for you. I want us to, I want us to frame this discussion uh, somewhat around something really practical. If, if, if you were sitting across a coffee table or a dinner table, uh, maybe you're sitting in a park somewhere and you've engaged in conversation with someone Maybe it's someone that's a new Christian or even a non-believer perhaps who's exploring the idea of what it means to be a Christian. He or she is interested. How would you begin to explain to that person what it means to live the Christian life? I hope that we could all walk them through what it means to know Jesus Christ and to, and to tell them the witness of the gospel and the good news that Christ has died for us and He's, he, he's, he's purchased us with his own blood and that we, we obtain that through faith. But, but if, if, if someone were to press you further and they say, okay, well, fine, but, but what, does that, what does that look like every day? How do I live that out? I'm a new Christian. How, how does God expect me to live? How would you answer that question? How would you answer that question in a few sentences so as to give that person something to hang on to and to think about and chew on for the next few days. And I'm hoping that as we go through this lesson, uh, we can begin to use Romans uh, 12, 1 through 8 as a, as a textbook 
uh, as, a, as a tutorial to help someone know how to live the Christian life. How do you actually do this day in and day out? And so you'll look there, I have Paul's overall point as I can understand it from this passage that Paul wants to teach us by each member of Christ's body presenting themselves as living, holy, and acceptable sacrifices to God in both body and mind, the church as the whole body of Christ will fulfill its calling to a life of spiritual worship. I think that's Paul's overall point here, so let's, let's investigate this. First of all, what is meant by spiritual worship? This is a phrase that, depending on what Bible translation you're using, it could be translated differently. And there's a reason for that. Look at this. The first word, which the ESV translates as spiritual, is the Greek logikos. Um, and this word can be translated as either spiritual, or it could even be translated with the word rational. Right? Something to do with the mind and thinking. And, and both of these translations are possible. They're both within the range of meaning for the word. So which one is it? Is it something spiritual or is it something rational? Am I, am I doing this right uh, spiritually? Am I doing this uh, thinking with my mind? Is this, is this cognitive? What is this, Paul? What are you trying to say? And then the second word, which the ESV translates as worship, is latreia. And it can be translated as worship. Or it can be translated as service, right? Actual things that you're doing in service to the Lord or in service to someone else, both, right? So which one is it, Paul? Because the fact is, is that this Greek word could be translated either way and it would be perfectly within the range of meaning of the word. I like what um, Leinhardt says here, and I have that quote for you by... In the end, as we study these two words, he says, we are left with the fact that Paul has used two words, both of which are ambiguous. We cannot feel confident that either spiritual or rational is absent from the adjective or that worship or service is lacking from the noun. There is a, quote, rich complexity in the expression. It's, it's almost as though Paul gives us a double-double entendre. Both words are a double entendre. Both words, depending on which way you turn it, right, it has, it has a, a slightly different meaning, and that Paul's doing this purposefully. And I have that in italicis there. From the get-go, Paul is making the point that mind and body, worship and service, are not mutually exclusive entities. Our unity with Christ affects every aspect of our being, physical and metaphysical, physical, spiritual, right? That, and this fact is going to frame the rest of our discussion on this passage, okay? So first of all, let's see what Paul has to say about the body in spiritual worship, the body. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what part of ourselves is Paul saying that we should offer up to God? We just answered it, right? What is it? Our body. Our body. Like our physical bodies, okay? Flesh and blood. How we live in the body, church, this morning matters to God. It matters to God what you do with your body. Next question there. 
and I invite you to shoot some responses out. What is the difference between a living sacrifice as opposed to a dead and bloody sacrifice? Mm-hmm. The shedding of blood is no longer necessary, right? Sacrifices are, if you sacrifice yourself physically, you will not do that daily, right? <laughs> All right. Uh-huh. Yet sacrifice as you live and breathe, right? And the reason that there is no more cause for blood sacrifices, right? Lambs and turtle doves and bulls is because Christ has offered that once for all sacrifice of himself as we have been studying on Sunday nights as we go through the book of Hebrews. So if we turn over uh, to the next page, our bodies are to be living holy and acceptable sacrifices. Three adjectives Paul uses to describe the way that your body should be a sacrifice it should be living as we just discussed right we're not we're not offering ourselves up in in human sacrifices or or martyrdom necessarily though sometimes we are called to that christians have been but our bodies are living sacrifices holy sacrifices and acceptable sacrifices and when you look at this in the in the actual greek those adjectives precede the noun so paul intends for all of these adjectives to describe the type of sacrifice holy your body should be consecrated and dedicated unto God, separated unto God. And that your body should be pleasing to God. It should be acceptable to Him. And these three adjectives being ascribed to our bodies demonstrate the intense concern that God has for what we do with our bodies. A lot of times we think about these things with our heart. You know, we understand that God reads and knows our hearts, but... To hear all of these words being used with reference to our physical selves ought to cause us to pause and ask us how we live and how we do each and every day. And what is the basis uh, for which we offer ourselves as living sacrifices? What does Paul say is the basis for this? Amen. The mercies of God, right, he says, the mercies of God. Paul has spent 11 chapters talking about God's mercy, his abundant, overflowing mercy upon sinners who do not deserve anything but condemnation, and yet he has given them salvation. And Paul says, based on those mercies, you should live your life as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. I like what John Stott says right there. I have it for you to read. In the New Testament... Religion is grace, and ethics is gratitude. So go back to that thought experiment that we said at the very beginning. Considering what Paul has said about the body, 
somebody was to ask you, what does it mean to live the Christian life? How would you begin to answer that question for them? Just based on what Paul has said right here so far. How would you begin to answer that question? Just think about that in your mind. We need to dispel the cultural myth that we can just be a spiritual person, as I have some friends of mine who have told me in the past. I'm a very spiritual person. This is all something going on inside. At some, some point in some way, they're praying to some God somewhere, uh, but, but it's not evident in the way that they live at all. There's no, there's no outward physical manifestation of that. Where's the fruit, right? Where's the fruit? The mind in spiritual worship. Let's move on to that. The mind in spiritual worship. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's, here's a question. What does Paul say we should and should not do in order to offer up ourselves, our minds in this case, as living, holy, and acceptable sacrifices to God. What should we do and should not do, according to that verse? Right? We should not be conformed to the, to the world. Don't be conformed. Don't be a chameleon. Don't change your color, depending on your environment. But you should do what? Transformed by... Right, be transformed, yeah, like a butterfly, yeah, like that, 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 that uh, caterpillar that goes into that cocoon and it comes out a completely different creature, right? Paul's talking, and it's interesting because the, uh, the theologians who, who really write so well on this topic talk about that there is a really big difference between uh, the words of conformity and transformity. One is very superficial, uh, but one is deeply, deeply uh, more like being changed from larva to butterfly, and I think it's safe to say that if one is happening, the other is not. In other words, if you are conforming to the world, you're probably not being transformed by the renewal of your mind. But if you are being transformed, you're not going to be conforming to the world. You can't have it both ways. One is happening or the other. So how are we being transformed according to Paul? The renewal of your mind. Yes, yes. So it's not just physical. It's not just showing up to church. It's not just doing acts of service, right? That there's The reason that we're doing this is because there's something deep within us that is being transformed into the image of Christ, and it's affecting the body. It's affecting the outward fruit that everyone else can see. And what is um, the purpose for this renewed mind? What does Paul say is the purpose? What about the will of God? Discern it. Yeah, I heard somebody say it. So that we could discern the will of God. So notice, mind is transformed so that we can do a thinking thing, a discernment of the will of God. And what is the will of God? Well, Paul says that the will of God is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Look at that quote there. The believer whose life is that of the new age, does not think like an unbeliever. The reference to the mind is important. Paul does not envisage a mindless emotionalism, but a deeply intellectual approach to life as characteristic of the Christian who has been renewed 
by the Holy Spirit. And I guess the next question is, is how is the renewal of the mind helping me to discern the will of God? How, how's, that, how's that working? You know, are, are we saying that you know, whenever you're, when you, when you're saved and you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that he renews your mind so that you can you know, kind of tap into the, to the, to the, to the mind of God, right? You, got, you get a direct phone line to heaven, you know? Huh? If only, right? Wouldn't that be something, you know? Uh, or some would say, you know, you can think God thoughts. Almost as though you become one with the divine and you can think God thoughts. Is that what Paul is saying here? No. No. Well, what is he saying, right? Um, I, w- I would agree again with, with John Stott who says, and I, and I have that on the next point. Here then are the stages of Christian moral transformation. First, our minds are renewed by the word and spirit of God. And then we are enabled to discern and desire the will of God. And then we are increasingly transformed by that, right? So it's, it's almost like the water cycle. You all know, remember from science class how the water cycle goes, right? We're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We're brought to spiritual life. Our hearts of stone are removed. We're given hearts of flesh. We're enabled to trust in the Lord, And we read God's word, and the more that we read God's word, the more that we know God's will, because he's told us his will right here. And the more that we know God's will, the more that we're transformed by it, and the more that we're transformed by it, the more that we can can read it and know more of the will of God, and the more, more the will of God that we know, the more we're transformed, and the more we're transformed, the more that we can know the will of God, the more that we know the will of God, the more we're transformed, the more we're transformed, the more... It's just this, it's just this cyclical cycle. Pastor Dave. Yeah. At the end of the day, anyone who has the ability to read can read this book. Amen. Yeah. Yeah.
Right, right. Good. Amen. Josh? Sorry, he raised his hand a second ago. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, because not everything in Scripture, I mean, it doesn't tell us which car to buy this year, right? You know, uh, but it does give us principles on how to manage money well, for example, and, 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 and it transforms our ideas about money and debt and so on and so forth. And then, of course, the list goes on. Miss Michelle, you were going to speak. Uh huh. It is. And, and, and we're empowered to do that by the, by the Holy Spirit, right? John, you uh, had your hand Yeah, yeah. The scriptures never tell us to. Meditate. That's the word. That's that's the word I was going to bring up. Yeah, you said you said that the scriptures doesn't it doesn't tell us how many times a year we should read our Bible, right? But the Psalms, for example, over and over and over again, talk about meditating upon the Word of God, and of course, with that is the idea that you're you're dwelling on it, you're thinking on it, you're. You're, you're wanting to understand it. We can't just put our Bibles underneath our pillows tonight and sleep over top of it and just kind of glean it all by osmosis, right? We're called to think, to meditate upon the Word of God. And, and through the Spirit of God, we, we understand 
his, his will for our lives in, in a very principled sense, and then we can apply those principles to how we live our lives each and every day. Moving on, uh, excellent discussion. Thank you so much. Um, going back to that thought experiment, okay? So if you were, you're sitting across the table from someone, they say, how do you live the Christian life, right? So we've talked about the body, now we've talked about the mind. How are you formulating that, that answer in your own, in your own mind? How, how are you thinking about this? How are you going to answer this question? All right, just continue thinking about that, and we're going to maybe formulate a, a short little answer at the end of the lesson. Uh, just for a couple of minutes, an important feature of Paul's discussion that we've, I think, made clear is that there is a unity between body and mind, okay? Uh, between worshiping God and serving God actively, of course, with your hands and feet, I mean. We can't separate the two. We can't separate body and mind or body and spirit. God created us with a unity. How is it in Western culture, right? Let's just think about American Western culture. How are we wanting to separate these two? How are we wanting to, how is American culture trying to separate mind and body? And two, let's think for a minute. How do we here in the church also sometimes fall guilty of separating these two and, and creating disunity rather than unity? Let's start with culture first. How's culture doing it? If it feels good, do it. Good. Yeah, you're just chemicals. Yeah, fizzing chemicals. Yeah. Yep. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, we could think of the sexual ethics of our day, right? I, I'm born biologically one thing, but I think and feel like I'm something else, as though, you can, as though you can separate your biology, right, from your gender, right? And, and, and this, there's, there's this huge wave of philosophies and psychologies that, that want to separate mind and body as though God did not create them together to work in conjunction with one another uh, or in... Or in to be synchronized with one another. But what about the church? And there's a lot of different things. Like we could, we, could, we could pick out some theological heresies and, you know, poke the noses of those. And I think that's, that's easy for us to do. But what about in the Christian life in the everyday? Even, even those of us who are striving to, you know, be, be biblically sound and doctrinally sound. I, I think J.I. Packer... Uh, his, I have the, the, his little caricatures, J.I. Packer's caricatures, um, might, might help us to think about some of this on a, on a really, really practical level. He says that some Christians are eggheads um, with little hearts and little hands. Uh, other Christians have huge hearts but don't know their doctrine. Uh, and still others have servants' attitudes but little love or knowledge of the truth, Right? And, and I think that whenever we, we are not living out these principles that we've studied right here in, the, in this chapter of Romans is when we're going to really get disproportionate in our, in our Christian anatomy, so to speak. 
And if we were honest with ourselves, all of us are disproportionate to some degree or another. And we have to work to balance that out. Some of us love theology. We'll, we'll study it. We'll read it. You know, you give us, there, there is no page count too large to intimidate us, right? But do we have a heart to apply that, right? Or, or are we actually living that out in the way that we serve others, right? We don't want to be disproportionate in our Christian anatomy. And I think that a lot of times that happens because we forget this unity between body and mind, worship and service uh, in the Christian life. Nick? And, and if we're honest, we're all one of these, right, to some degree or another. Well, quickly then, uh, we, some more ground to cover. I, I, want, I want to look how Paul, is, he moves from talking about the individual, right? How, how does the individual serve God in body? How does the individual serve God with a renewed mind? And then transitioning into how does that, how does that begin to... Um, affect the whole body of Christ, right? Because we're not saved unto ourselves, right? We're, we're saved and we're brought into the body of Christ. We're brought into the family of God, right? We're, we're all the bride of Christ. None of us in an individual, at an individual level are the bride uh, in and of ourselves, right? If so, he has a very ugly bride this morning standing up here. Um, so, Let's look at this, right? Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what is Paul calling us to? What disposition is he calling us to? He's calling us to humility. Humility. And what has God assigned to every believer? Okay, I'm just going to try to hit some of these points so we can get to some more discussion. But... Uh, Verse 12 and 3, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 3, when Paul says that uh, each uh, is to be living according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, what exactly does he mean by that? Uh, I personally think that Paul is talking uh, about gifts for ministry, right? Gifts for gospel service. Um, and, and part of the reason why I think that that's what he's talking about is because of the context of this whole chapter. Look at how he, he flows right into that discussion in the next few verses, right? For we, for as um, in one body, we have many members and members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, all right, and then he talks about the gifts that we have according to the grace given to us. He talks about prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, gener uh, generosity, um, leadership, and mercy. Okay? Paul loves the analogy of all of us being part of the body of Christ. All members of one body. He loves that he, he mentions it here in Romans, he mentions it in Ephesians, and he mentions it in 1 Corinthians, okay? And it's this, it's this idea that Paul wants us to understand that we need each other. We need each other. We cannot live the Christian life alone. 
We cannot live the Christian life in solitude. We need each other. Peter says the same thing, right? He says in 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter calls us all individual stones that are building one house, right? One temple of God or in Revelation, one city of God, right? We need each other. We're called to need each other. It's part of our being created in the image of God. And then Paul talks about gifts, right? And he mentions two different types of gifts. He mentions speaking gifts and service gifts. The two major categories. Look at what Leon Morris says. I have that quote there for you just below uh, the question, first question on the last page. Leon Morris said, if anyone is not given that great gift, all right, there are some gifts that we feel like are more important than others. Let's just be honest. All right, we have a hierarchy of gifts in our minds. But he says that if you feel like you haven't been given the great gift, but is given the, you're given the more humdrum gift of being able to serve in a lowly place, then he should not sigh, for he does not have but, uh, for he does not have but use the gift God has given him. And the ability to do lowly service well is a gift. Many quite brilliant people seem constitutionally unable to perform lowly service well. There's a lot of lowly service to be done. Probably most of the service in the kingdom of God is what we'd call lowly service, isn't it? There's a lot of lowly service to be done, but anyone who has the gift of doing it should rejoice at the wonder of divine grace. There's no small work in the kingdom of God, and for us to be able to do quote-unquote meaningless tasks well and to do it with joy, that is a gift of God. That is a true gift of God. I have a, a long... A longer uh, quote here from uh, the book by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp on how people change. And it's this idea of spiritual gifts. How do spiritual gifts affect the life of the church? Uh, bear with me as I read this to you. This, this really hit me between the eyes this week as I was reading. The authors say, think about the gifts God has given you. How are they meant to serve other members of the body as they seek to honor Christ? When we don't think about our gifts in this corporate way, the very gifts that we are given to bless the community are used to divide it. I remember a situation where a church was located near a trailer park. Over the years, the church struggled to reach out to this community. In a congregational meeting, the pastor encouraged the congregation to make new commitment to serve the people there. One person stood up and said that the past efforts had failed because the church lacked organization. Another person said that the church had failed due to a lack of knowledge regarding the people's practical needs. And still another person said that the church lacked evangelistic zeal. In each case, the person offering criticism had the gifts to make the effort succeed. The person who saw a lack of organization had the gift of administration. 
The person who saw the lack of concern for practical needs had the gift of mercy. The person who thought the church lacked evangelistic zeal had the gift of evangelism. About a month later, these three individuals got together and pooled their gifts for evangelism, mercy, and administration to spearhead a successful ministry to the residents of the trailer park. Listen to this. Are there places where your gifts are needed in the body of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. A better question is where are your gifts needed? Not are they needed, but where are they needed? One good way to determine your gift is to ask yourself where you see these weaknesses in the body. It is highly likely that you see these weaknesses because you are looking at the church through the lens of your gifts. We're called to need each other. We're all called to serve. There are no little lies and big U's in the kingdom. Back to that thought experiment. How would you continue to explain the qualities of living the Christian life by including your role in the life of the kingdom? So, after all that we've said, we serve God in body, we serve God in mind, we serve God with each other and for each other. How are you going to tell that person, here's how you live the Christian life. Here's how you do it. Your answer may differ from mine, but I tried to pull all of the different themes that we've discussed this morning and put them into this three-sentence answer. An answer I personally would like to maybe even try to memorize so that I could just give this to somebody should the, should the need ever arise. Listen to this. A, Christians are called to serve God in our bodies by living life, a life that is holy and acceptable before God. However, Christians serve God in body through the vehicle of a mind transformed and renewed by the Holy Spirit so that we can discern and do God's will. Lastly, Christians are not called to live for God in body and mind by themselves or for themselves, but we serve the entire church, the body of Christ, according to our own unique God-given talents. Any thoughts on any thoughts or comments? We have two minutes left, so that's good time for some discussion. We've said a lot. I'm sorry that I've talked as much as I have. Um, so much here I wanted to help us think through. Any thoughts or concerns or ideas? Yes, sir. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it's 1015. Let's, uh, let's uh, conclude with a word of prayer. Please join me. Lord, you have...